The New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, on page 890 in your pew Bible. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed uh, colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in this place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. It's really a joy um, for me to be here. And for me, at least, it feels a little bit like it's been a long time coming. I've been talking with Will for a long time about your church, heard a lot about you guys, and really am glad to be with you. Um, I first met Will in the fall of 2016 in what was my first ever seminary class. And I remember immediately, immediately noticing the gentleness and sincerity in his voice. And what I've come to learn in the years since then is that such gentleness and sincerity are characteristics not only of his voice, but really of the whole shape of his life. So he's a dear friend to me, and I'm especially honored to be here with you uh, this morning. And I'm grateful already this weekend to your warm hospitality towards me. My wife, Ellen, was hoping to be here with me this weekend, um, but she ended up needing to be at a funeral. And obviously we're not in control of such things, but I do feel like I ought to apologize for this because it means that you all are left with only the lesser Wiley. Uh, perhaps it also means that I'll try to return sometime soon so you can see what I mean. For now, though, I'm grateful to be here. So, um, yeah, really honored and grateful to, to be with you in this time. Let's pray as we begin this morning. 
Father, thank you for giving us this day and this time to gather together to sing to you and pray to you and hear from you. We ask now that you would speak to us through your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. By your spirit, would you teach us to walk in a more joyful obedience? And would you surround us with the incorruptible hope of Christ, your Son, our Lord? We pray in his name. Amen. Roger Federer retired about a year ago in September of 2022. Many people consider him to be the greatest tennis player of all time, or at least one of the greatest tennis players of all time. And there's a 2006 New York Times article by David Foster Wallace called Roger Federer as Religious Experience. The piece talks about what it's like to watch Federer play tennis, and especially how much more remarkable it is to do this in person. It tries to communicate just what it's like to watch Federer's greatness on the court. Even if you're not a tennis fan, I think it's an enjoyable read. Some of you may know the piece that I'm talking about. Anyway, I want to begin this morning by reading a paragraph from that article. Here's what Wallace says about Federer. The metaphysical explanation is that Roger Federer is one of those rare, preternatural athletes who appear to be exempt, at least in part, from certain physical laws. Good analogs here include Michael Jordan, who could not only jump inhumanly high, but actually hang there a beat or two longer than gravity allows, and Muhammad Ali, who really could float across the canvas and land two or three jabs in the clock time required for one. There are probably a half dozen other examples since 1960, and Federer is of this type, a type that one could call genius or mutant, or avatar. He is never hurried or off balance. The approaching ball hangs for him a split second longer than it ought to. Like Ali, Jordan, Maradona, and Gretzky, he seems both less and more substantial than the men he faces. He looks like what he may well be, a creature whose body is both flesh and somehow light a creature whose body is both flesh and somehow light. Wallace here is describing an experience I think we can all relate to in one way or another. The experience of watching someone who is so excellent at their craft that they make it look easy, as if it takes them hardly any effort at all. And we can picture this in different ways, right? It could be an athlete or a musician or a dancer or a woodworker, or so on. But from time to time, we encounter somebody doing something that we know is very technical and difficult, but they are making it look simple and easy. It seems as if they're doing the very thing that they were created to do. Though we know it takes lots of work, when we see them do it, it looks like they are at rest. They make work look like rest. Our text this morning in John chapter 5 raises and responds to a few theological problems. Not abstract theological problems, but concrete ones, ones that we wrestle with, ones that we live with. There are problems of sickness, problems of sin, and problems of Sabbath. At their core, I think all of these problems have to do with God's work and God's rest. And in turn, then, they also touch on our work and our rest. So we'll take some time now to sort of walk through the passage 
tracing the story together and trying to note some of the problems that arise along the way. And we'll see how the text responds to these various problems. And by the end of it, we'll try to piece it all together to see what good news comes to us as the answer to these problems, these problems of sickness and sin and Sabbath, these questions about God's work and God's rest. So meet me if you haven't already in John chapter 5. Thank you uh, for already reading the text for us. The first couple of verses tell us about the setting of our story. We learn in verse 1 that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem during some Jewish feast. And we're told that in Jerusalem there was a pool called Bethesda by the Sheep Gate with five roofed colonnades. And there are multitudes of invalids in these porches, those who are blind and lame and paralyzed. John is recording these details here at the beginning of the story because he wants us to know the place that he's talking about. He wants them to be able to picture it. You know, that pool Bethesda by the Sheep Gate, the one where people with various disabilities and sicknesses and diseases gathered? Yeah, that's where this story happened. That's what I'm talking about. This story happened there. And even today, we know exactly where this is. They've done archaeological digs. They've found this pool. It's right there in Jerusalem sitting in what would have been the shadow of the north wall of the temple. And in verse 5, we're told that here, at this pool, there was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there for a very long time, he said, do you want to be healed? Jesus knows that 38 years is a long time. And knowing this, Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? And at first, this question almost seems ridiculous enough to be sort of offensive. I mean, does he want to be healed? Well, what do you think? He's been unable to walk for 38 years. And and not just that, but he's been sitting at this pool, this pool where healings happened. Don't you think he would like to get better? It's quite audacious for Jesus to ask him, to approach this man and ask him if he wants to be healed. But of course, Jesus isn't doing this to offend. He's not asking this question from a place of ignorance, but from a deep knowledge of the human soul, a deep knowledge of the wounded human soul. Because sometimes we do not want to be healed. Sometimes there are parts of us, sick parts of us, that do not want to be healed. Being healed can be scary. Being healed can be a surrender. Some of the parts of us that need healing have been around for so long, have become so familiar to us, that to lose them would be to lose a part of our own identity, to lose how we have come to know ourselves in this world. Do you want to be healed? There's a poem I like that has a few lines that capture this sort of question. It's called Uprising by Elton Higgs. Listen to these lines. He would not heal by my desire. He had to raise the man entire or not at all. And the rising was to me more fearful than the fall. Sometimes being healed can be scary. Sometimes rising is more fearful to us than the fall. But the sick man in our story does in fact want to be healed, right? He answers Jesus in verse seven. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while while I am going, another steps down for me. You see, this pool called Bethesda didn't just happen to be the place where all the sick people or all the people with diseases gathered. It was a pool where healings happened. 
After the stirring of the water, the first person to step into the pool would be healed of his or her disease. Some of you might have noticed that our passage this morning, at least in our English Bibles, is missing verse 4. It goes straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, this is not a mistake. It's not some typo on behalf of the people who made this Bible. It's actually a very intentional decision by the translation committee to reflect as faithfully as they can the original manuscripts of this text. In your Bible, there's probably a footnote at the end of verse 3 that will say something like this. Some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. The difficulty here is that the earliest manuscripts we have don't have this explanation in them. The earliest manuscripts go straight from verse 3 to verse 5, but that makes the sick man's answer in verse 7 a bit harder to understand. So what probably happened is that some manuscript copyist along the way realized that John needed more explanation for his story to make sense to his readers, at least for those of us who don't know what they all knew about this pool called Bethesda. So he inserted this little detail in verse 4 to give some context for why this man would be talking about the stirring of the water, right? It was known to the original readers of John, but later on we don't know exactly what he's talking about, so they put in this little verse to help explain which is why we have it in a footnote, because it's probably not original, but it is helpful to know. Do you want to be healed? Well, every time the water is stirred, someone else beats me down to it. This isn't really a statement of great faith or desire, so much as it is one of resignation, sort of matter of fact. I mean, yeah, I want to be healed, but I can never get down to the water in time. So, you know, I'm just here. I've been here for a while. And Jesus hears this, and he says to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Sometimes in John's Gospel, Christ's healings are predicated upon the faith of the person who is being healed. For instance, in the chapter just before this, the Roman official's son is healed because of the official's stubborn insistence that Jesus could, in fact, heal him. But here in our story, the faith and the desire of the sick man are sort of ambivalent at best. But Jesus heals him anyway. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. When Jesus encounters the problem of sickness, he shows that he is at work to heal us. Sometimes our faith cooperates with this work, but sometimes he'll do it on his own accord, with or without our great faith. For those of us who perhaps feel as if our faith is a bit thin or our desire is running dry, Jesus is still able to heal and able to save. He is not dependent upon us. Now with the problem of this man's sickness answered, the second half of our passage turns to the problems of sin and the Sabbath. This man has been sick for nearly four decades. And right after he is healed, the Jewish religious leaders accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. 
for it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's their first response. And their hard-heartedness is astonishing. And it is a warning. They have no room in their religious boxes for healings like this. And no compassion in their supposedly religious hearts for this kind of miracle. It is not lawful. But the man answers and says, look, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So I know you guys didn't think I would be walking today. And trust me, I didn't really think I would be either. But that man healed me and he told me to walk. The religious leaders don't even want to acknowledge the healing in their response in verse 12. They just ask, okay, who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Not who healed you, just who told you to walk? Who did that? And the man did not know, for there was a crowd and Jesus had withdrawn. We all have our religious boxes for what's allowed and what's not. And sometimes it's hard to tell which ones of them are right and good and which ones we should perhaps be less sure about. One clue from this text might be that if your boxes don't let you marvel at a healing after nearly 40 years, if your boxes don't leave room for praise here, then you might need to get some bigger boxes. If we encounter this kind of healing grace and our first concern is with the letter of the law, we might be missing the point. But the bigger lesson here, as we'll see, is that God is not threatened by our small boxes. As theologian Catherine Sonderegger puts it, we must remind ourselves again and again that God in truth cannot be endangered or constricted by our poor schemes. God will be glorified even here in our little cages that we so tidily build for our maker. God will be glorified even here. Verse 14 tells us that afterward, Jesus finds the healed man in the temple. As Calvin makes clear, Christ did not withdraw so that the memory of his kindness might perish, but just so that the work would be known first, and then that he would be recognized as its author. Jesus finds the man and says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's kind of hard to know the fullness of what Jesus means here. It could mean that the man's previous sickness was, in fact, a result of sin, either his sin or someone else's sin. But even if this were the case, we'd have to hold that along with what Jesus tells the disciples in John chapter 9. There, when the disciples ask about the man born blind, Jesus said, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the broader lesson of John seems to be, don't go around finding sicknesses and looking for the sins that caused them. And even here in our passage, the main point of what Jesus says is that however you think this man's sickness might be related to sin, the real danger of sin far surpasses that of physical sickness. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And after this, the man tells the religious leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is the reason they were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, says verse 16. In fact, verse 18 says they were seeking to kill him, not just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
when the religious leaders come to Jesus and accuse him of wrongdoing for healing on the Sabbath, he does not respond to them by pointing out the absurdity of their concern. He does not appeal to their compassion. He does not say to them, look, I know we're supposed to not work on the Sabbath, but this man was really sick and in need of healing. He doesn't even appeal to the marvel of what he had done. He doesn't say, well, I mean, did you guys see what I did? This man hadn't walked in 38 years, and and now he's walking. No, Jesus doesn't do any of that. He's not looking to impress them or convince them. He does not need their approval. His justification is simple in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. This statement is the answer to all the problems that are raised in our text. Confronted with this man's sickness, Jesus says, I am at work to heal. Confronted with this man's sin, Jesus says, I am working. Confronted with the religious leader's concern for the Sabbath, Jesus says, I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. Early Christian theologians wrestled with this text a little bit because it seems that there are other parts of Scripture which teach us that God is at rest. I mean, the whole reason for the Sabbath is that on the seventh day, God rested from his work. But here Jesus says that God is working until now. So this is a little bit of a conundrum, and you see early Christian interpreters trying to make sense of how both of those things can be true. But there are different kinds of rest. Right? There's the rest that's the stopping of movement or the rest that is the quieting of energy. But there's also the kind of rest that is an arrival at one's final form, a coming to be the fullness of what one was intended to be. That kind of fitting fulfillment is also itself a kind of rest. Like Roger Federer playing tennis, God can make certain kinds of work look like rest. Because God is most fully himself when he is healing our sicknesses and our sin. Deep healing is God's work and God's rest. My father is working until now and I am working. Augustine imagines Christ as saying, My father worked when he made the world and he still works when he rules the world. Therefore, just as it was by me that he created when he created the world... So it is by me that he rules when he rules the world. When pressed up against the problem of this man's sickness, Jesus is at work to heal. When pressed up against the problem of this man's sin, Jesus is at work to heal. And when pressed up against this concern about the Sabbath, Jesus is at work to heal. As Hebrews puts it, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In Christ, God's being and God's action come together in a perfect, unitive wholeness. He does exactly as he is, and in that divine constancy is all our hope, the mystery which heals the whole world. I love the name of your church, One Ancient Hope. I don't know exactly what you intended when you named yourself such. But I deeply resonate with what it communicates. There is one true grace. It is quite an old gospel, and to receive it is an act of desperate desire. God's work 
God's rest is the answer to the problems that we've seen in this story. Problems of sickness and sin and Sabbath. But there's actually one more problem here that we haven't really touched yet. I think it's the most serious theological problem that we're confronted with when we read this text. Or at least I think it's the one that we feel most deeply. It's the problem of suffering. In our Bible, this passage is given the title, The Healing at the Pool on the Sabbath. But it could just as well be called The Non-Healing of the 99. Yes, Jesus healed a man at this pool called Bethesda. But here lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Why did he not heal all of them? Why does he not heal all of us? This is the real problem we face. This is the deepest one we wrestle with. And we're pressed up against it in various ways. Some of us more personally than others. Some of us more severely than others. But all of us feel this problem. And at times we are afraid of its weight. We might try to ignore it from time to time. But in the end, we cannot escape it. In the end, it chases us down. There is always more healing that we are waiting for. The way that Christ responds to this problem in this text is the same way he responds to the other problems in this text. He promises us, my father is working until now, and I am working. God is most fully himself, bringing us, all of us, into that great rest. His is a flame constantly burning, burning and not consuming, burning and making us whole. He will draw us to himself, and he will not fail. He will purify us in the flame of his holiness. He will heal us in the mercy of his love. The promise that God in Christ is still at work is our only hope. In a world that is in desperate need of healing, to walk in faith is to hold on to the promise that Jesus makes in this passage. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Sometimes this faith looks pretty sure and steady. Moments when we can declare, yes, Lord, we want to be healed. Moments when we can cry out for that healing on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of those whom we love or on behalf of the whole world. But sometimes this faith is a little more uncertain. Sometimes our desire for healing and our faith that God will do it is ambivalent at best. But the good news of this story is that even in such times, God is at work to heal. In our moments of ambivalence, his promise remains sure. So if you find yourself this morning outside the sheep gate, as it were, unsure if you want to enter or re-enter into this household of God, this place of healing, our gospel tells us that Christ will come to you. He will find you. He has seen you sitting there. He will find you and heal you, whether or not you're sure about coming in through the gate. All of us in this room need healing. Some of us might need physical healing from sickness or disease or healing from things that we've suffered from for a very long time. Others of us need mental healing or emotional healing as we find ourselves gripped by anxiety or dulled with a constant state of low-grade depression. Some of us long for relational healing as we suffer from broken friendships and families and harbor bitterness that has taken root in our hearts over years. 
And we're all in need, of course, of spiritual healing from the sins that break us, the little addictions we can't seem to escape that turn us in on ourselves and shrink who we are. These are the problems we find ourselves pressed up against. These are the ones we want to ignore at times, but they keep chasing us down. And here now, pressed up against these kinds of suffering, there remains for us an open invitation. An invitation to cry out before God and ask him to heal us, to heal our sickness, to heal our sin, and to bring us into that great rest. This is the prayer of our life together. Now, as then, Christ stands before the world and he asks, do you want to be healed? And we say, yes, Lord. Yes, for ourselves and for those whom we love. Yes, for the whole world. Come, Lord Jesus, and heal us. Come and make us whole. And until that day, the words of Christ remain our only hope. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray in that hope. Father, thank you for the remarkable promise you make to us through your Son, Christ, in this text. We confess the ways that we find it hard to believe. We are suffering, we are longing for healing, and we're unsure about your presence and your work. So I ask that by your Spirit you would be especially near to us, especially those who are suffering in their bodies or whose families are suffering. And I ask that you would in ways that surprise us and surpass what we're even hoping for, that you would come and heal us. We believe that this is how you are most fully yourself to us, that your deep work and your deep rest are rooted in your full healing of the whole world. And we long for that. So for the ways that we have not longed for that, for the ways that we've given up on that hope, would you forgive us and would you strengthen us? Would you call us back into that posture of hope towards you, that posture of receptivity that you are, in fact, are coming to heal us and are coming to heal the whole world? So we long for that day. And in the meantime, we ask that by your spirit, you would encourage us and keep us in faith in ways that are particular to our stories and particular to the extravagant grace you've shown us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.